There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. Hi, everyone. We just want to let you know that this is our 100th episode of the Wolf Connection Podcast. Stephen and myself could not be more grateful and thankful to all the guests who have shared their time, stories, everything, their adventures on this podcast with the two of us. We are so grateful and thankful as well to the listeners, all of you that have wrote us on email, commented on social media, and really welcomed us into your headphones, into your lives, and into this massive world of wolves. We can't thank you enough from the backing of Wolf Connection, and Stephen and I will be here for the next 100 episodes and beyond. A huge thank you and a massive howls to you all. We have another four-person Zoom today, but we are very thrilled to have both Michelle Lute and Renee Secor from Project Coyote on the podcast with Stephen and I. They Project Coyote is headquartered in the Bay Area in Larkspur, California. Renee is coming to us from Garrison, New York, while Michelle is in El Dorado, California. Michelle is now the conservation director at Project Coyote, whereas Renee is the carnivore conservation advocate. Thank you both for making the time, for coming on to the podcast. How are you both doing? Good, good. Thank you so much for having us. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, no, we were talking about this for a while, trying to get in contact uh, with Project Coyote, and we, we follow you guys both via Wolf Connection and the podcast. And so Steve and I have a lot of things we want to touch on. But first things first is we want to get an, an, a sense of how you both got there. So Michelle, we'll start with you. Uh, and by the way, congratulations on uh, you just got a, a title bump and being the conservation director. But what led you down the path to Project Coyote? And just give us a little bit of your background. My route, you know, if you look at my resume, you might think it's pretty circuitous. Um, but um, I've worked in in lots of different areas. I've worked for uh, the federal government with the National Park Service. I've worked for state government as a wildlife biologist in New Mexico. I've worked for a lot of universities. And the common theme across all of these different institutions and different angles is carnivore coexistence. So how do we move from conflict to coexistence with the most maligned carnivores from wolves to mountain lions and coyotes and everything in between? So um, I've built a, a depth of understanding around, around coexistence um, and a breadth of, of different angles and perspectives to try and get at moving from conflict to coexistence. So always been interested in wildlife um, and addressing the most um, needed areas, which has been human-wildlife conflict in, you know, in the Anthropocene, the age dominated by humans. We've, we've got to learn to coexist in a hot, hungry, and crowded world. And so that's, that's what I've been trying to do ever since I got started. Nice. And Renee, what about you? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, um, you know, started out in uh, the sciences, got a, you know, wildlife ecology degree um, out in Montana and uh, just really fell in love with, um, you know, 
wild places and, and carnivores and, you know, apex predators and landscapes and, um, uh, with that love for, you know, the ecology of kind of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, I felt a strong desire to really advocate for kind of carnivores and the species that I love and the wild places that I loved really deeply. And so that kind of, uh, led me to, uh, uh, go, uh, for a law degree, um, and kind of become, you know, the best equipped advocate I could be in order to kind of advocate for these species in places that I, I loved very deeply. So, so with you, Renee, what was the pull, pull of the attraction to get you out West? Because you, it looks like you grew up in New York. Uh, you're coming to us from, from Garrison today. How did you make your journey out West and fall into this specific project? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I grew up, you know, about 40, 45 minutes north of Manhattan. So a pretty urban kind of uh, suburban um, environment. So very far removed from, um, you know, Montana and the Yellowstone ecosystem, these places. But um, I uh, just always had a real deep love for for nature and parents who really nurtured that um, at a really young age, uh, you know, grew up kind of, you know, in my summers, my parents would bring me up to like Green Mountain National Forest in Vermont. And we'd spend a lot of time, you know, outside canoeing, kayaking, rock climbing, doing all these things. So just, you know, they, I really attribute my love for being outside and and wildlife to them. Um, and then I think by the time I was set to go to college, I wanted to go as far West as I possibly could, just like strong desire to, you know, I had never been out West. Um, and so, I just had a strong desire to get into kind of as wild of a landscape as I possibly could. Um, and um, I remember throwing out the idea to my parents that I wanted to like move to Alaska and and uh, uh, literally work with a, a uh, I did a red sled dog racer who I had like created a pen pal friendship with and like live in the middle of the Alaska wilderness. Right. And like, so like I, that was where my mind was at. I say that just to kind of, right. So um, they talked me down from that path and into, you know, going out to Montana to get an environmental science degree at, at a Rocky Mountain College. And I'm so glad I did because um, I really fell in love with the, you know, Yellowstone ecosystem and, and um, got to have this big adventure out West. So that's terrific. And then from Michelle, you, how do you feel that your former work because you were talking about your work with the federal government and, you, and you've built up this database of information and skills. How do you feel that a lot of your previous work has helped you in becoming the conservation director now at Project Coyote? What are some of the things that you learned along the way that has made you so equipped to be able to get out uh, the message and the mission of Project Coyote? Sure. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Um, it could be a really long story. I'll try and keep it relatively brief, but um, it's taught me about the perspectives of people I don't agree with, for one. Um, so my, uh, I'm an interdisciplinary scientist, uh, traditionally trained in animal behavior and ecology. So my master's, I was chasing monkeys around and trying to understand primate behavior. And then for my PhD, um, focused on wolves, I, I realized very quickly that well, I really have to study human primates now and understand their behavior and what drives that. So my PhD was, you know, sitting in the kitchens of, of farmers and ranchers in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It was talking 
um, to the folks on the other side of that table, um, the wolf advocates and wildlife advocates that were not necessarily agreeing with those ranchers and how to manage wolves in, in places like Michigan. So um, relating to people on a you know human to human individual basis really helped me coming from more of the wildlife advocacy side, helped me understand uh, where the other side is coming from. Even though I'm the daughter of three generations of farmers, I, I get that side too. But, you know, I was talking to all, the, you know, I named just a couple of the different quote unquote traditional stakeholder groups involved in wolf management. Uh, but sitting down and relating to those folks and, and having conversations as, as just two people um, was really eye-opening to help me understand um, where people are coming from, how to meet people where they're at, and how to treat everybody with respect, even if we don't agree. And that that was just fundamental um, to my ability to, to navigate these really entrenched value-based disagreements. Um, again, they are kind of, they're still value-based disagreements. There's still um, a moral framework that's, you know, um, gets in the way of compromise. But I think that's the other lesson is, to learn how far compromise can take you and, um, you know, where you have to stand on your principles and say, hey, we actually, we do have to move the needle on, say, a moral community and that we have to include all life in our, you know, considerations of what's right and wrong. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really sticky. You know, in the academic world, you call these things wicked problems because there's not clear solutions to them. But um, my different, yeah, my different experiences at state and federal government and then um, trying to be as, as objective and neutral of a researcher has really kind of helped me be able to put my, my feet in on someone else's shoes and, and try to talk to them and find common ground so that we can get somewhere with, with good progressive wildlife policy. What are, what's the basis for you that's good middle ground wildlife policy that you have in these talks with both sides? What's the common sense wildlife policy? Is there any, and have you seen anything in all of the, the research and the publications and the, the talks that you've done uh, that has sort of surfaced that both sides seem to at least be somewhat agreeable on? <laughs> oh, that's, that's the rub. That's hard. And, and I would say that what I'm advocating for, a lot of people would not say is the middle ground by any means. Um, but everything that I do, everything that Project Coyote does is rooted in the best available modern science that shows what works and what doesn't. And that's non-lethal uh, proactive tools to prevent conflict before it ever happens. Whether we're talking about uh, grazing ranch lands out west or we're talking about uh, somebody's backyard in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York City. It's preventing conflict before it ever happens, and the science supports that. So that's, you know, I think that's the best case scenario that we're really trying to, to promote everywhere we work. So, Renee, what is the, the, base, the base mission now that we have you guys, uh, the two of you, and, and we understand your, how you got here and, and all the awesome uh, intellect and the information that you guys have. What's the the main mission for Project Coyote? What's their, if we were to, you know, and your website is fantastic. You guys have so much wonderful information. What's the main driver for Project Coyote? What's their mission? Yeah, so, you know, overall, I think, our, you know, our main goal is to really promote compassionate conservation through science, advocacy, and education. 
um, and really foster coexistence um, bete- between people and wildlife. Um, and, you know, we have um, a lot of different programs that do, do that, does that in a lot of different avenues and ways, uh, just to name a few, like our Coyote Friendlies Community Program works on you know, fostering uh, coexistence between people and coyotes in urban, rural communities all across the country, um, as well as our Protecting America's Wolves campaign really works on, um, you know, fostering coexistence between people and wolves. And that um, also relates to our Ranching with Wildlife program that, you know, works on promoting non-lethal solutions to wolf livestock um, conflicts and, 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 you know, conflicts with agricultural interests and um, so I think overall, the broad mission is really to promote just this compassionate conservation model and really start to um, kind of, you know, get foster coexistence between people and carnivores on a, on a national scale. So for you, Renee, as the, the carnivore conservation advocate, are you involved in all of these campaigns? I know that you mentioned the two with the uh, Protecting America's Wolves campaign and Ranching with Wildlife, I think was another so which ones are you, are you involved in every single campaign that started or are you specific to certain ones, wolves in particular, coyotes? Where do you, where do you sit on, on some of these campaigns? Yeah, yeah. So my position, you know, is advocating really for all things, all things carnivore nationally. Um, but I definitely have, you know, a, a focus on a few campaigns um, currently. One is the Protecting America's Wolves campaign, um, you know, and... Um, within that campaign, our central focus right now is relisting the wolves of the Northern Rockies. Um, and so, um, I've been, you know, creating kind of a targeted weekly actions for our supporters to take, um, directed at our public representatives and to increase public awareness on, on how the wolves of the Northern Rockies are still federally delisted, despite wolves in 44 states being relisted um, pursuant to a court order in February, the Northern Rockies wolves, you know, are still federally delisted. And so this, um, you know, the central focus right now of that campaign is is um, to relist those wolves in the Northern Rockies. So that's definitely, um, you know, one of our main uh, campaigns that I'm working on right now, um, as well as our Coyote Friendlies Community Campaign. We, you know, we consistently have communities across the country uh, reaching out to us, um, you know, to help kind of give public presentations on how to coexist with coyotes, you know. Um, and so we do a lot of, you know, I do a lot of public interfacing with the public, communicating with people, um, communicating with animal control officers and and different local communities on how they can foster coexistence and move away from these kind of, kind of historical lethal management kind of protocols that they've had towards non-lethal uh, practices. And and yeah, so those are probably two of the big campaigns that I'm working on right now, um, as well as really, you know, supporting um, kind of state policy and legislation that, you know, bans things like wildlife killing contests and, um, you know, inhumane and cruel kind of trapping practices that happen across the country. So so really I work on a lot of different, a lot of different avenues, but those are kind of, I would say the key kind of campaigns that I'm working on right now. Wow, really, it really is an incredible amount of effort. Um, and in a personal sense, you know, you're, you're both in this arena um, of all things coyote, as you mentioned, where, where there are not generally clear solutions, where a lot of effort doesn't necessarily take you incredibly far in changing minds in the ways that you, you want to see. It's very similar for, for, you know, wolf advocates and such. But what, 
what keeps you showing up every day and give, giving your life to something of that degree of challenge? What, what's the dream for your, your legacy personally that, that keeps you, you know, in the trenches? And I'll start with uh, Renee and then we'll go to Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think if I dig back to what's really motivating for me, it's probably my like personal experiences with wildlife and carnivores. Um, right. That just, there's kind of like these like pinnacle moments of my life, I guess, where, and a lot of those happened in, in Yellowstone National Park. I mean, I mean, I remember vividly like the first time I saw a wolf pack in, in Yellowstone National Park and just like the excitement and the thrill. Um, and then learning, you know, the deeper kind of process of the reintroduction and what that meant for Yellowstone and, 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 you know, the keystone role that they have in ecosystems there and all the changes that Yellowstone has gone through since the reintroduction and the cascading effects that they have on ecosystems and just like their larger place in this community of species. Um, and so I think, you know, I guess, yeah, just those individual moments. I mean, I can literally think of like observing the Junction Butte wolf pack in Yellowstone, you know, howling at dawn. Um, and I think like reconnecting to those times that like I've had like, these amazing moments in nature and just wanting that for other people um, and wanting people to experience that. So they, they can feel the value that these, these wolves and these species have in our, in our world and in our environment. Um, so I would say that's the real motivating force for me. And Michelle, if you want to tag in. I just came back from a conference um, about healthy public lands and we just spent all day yesterday talking about, really overwhelming issues of, of climate change, mass extinction, and um, it can be overwhelming what we're, what we're trying to tackle. And, um, you know, there were, there were older folks there who've been working for a long time on these issues and can see the broad historical patterns now. And there were young people there also trying to, to, you know, create a new vision of their future and their kids' future. And um, so I would say, you know, working with different folks from all these different areas is empowering and helpful and reminds me that, you know, the overwhelming images of, of um, egregious and discriminate trapping of, you know, the body counts of piles of dead wolves, bobcats, coyotes that we look at um, after wildlife killing contests, you know, all those overwhelming statistics, photos that that kind of uh, make advocacy for, for vulnerable others such as wildlife so hard, you know, talking to folks who are also doing this work is is so rejuvenating and remembering that we we are working towards a vision and that there are places for hope. And hope is sort of a dirty word for a lot of people. Um, but I, you know, something that I took away from this conference was, a um, someone who, a youth activist who was like, what else am I going to do? Like, <laughs> this is the great challenge of my generation to address these, these really gnarly problems that have been created by humans. What else can I do but try? And so that's, that's really what's kind of been resonating with me. Um, and it's, it's been a thing that I've always struggled with when I was, was young, I wanted to rescue every animal I could find. I grew up on a farm. So there were always, 
you know, stray cats showing up and, and dogs running around. My dad was like, you can't save everything in the entire world, Michelle. And I was like, okay, but I got to try. So I had to focus a little bit, but it's sort of like, okay, who's in my path? If I'm encountering a vulnerable person in need, person defined very broadly, um, to include animals, um, I'm going to try. So that's, that's where I've been. I don't know. It, it reminds you how how incredible human beings are. It really only takes a sliver of hope of of thinking that you could possibly make a change to for humans to put in a maximum level of, of effort. And I think that's really that's a really cool thing that I'm I'm learning over all these episodes. Absolutely. I mean, so I mean, for Michelle, for you, because you just got back from this conference, and, and Renee said something before when she was talking about these campaigns and trying to get these into state and federal places. What is, do you feel like with your background in those state and federal uh, places of work that you have a little bit of an inside track? Do you feel like there's, you you understand the inner workings of these uh, governmental bodies that you can understand how to approach things a little bit differently when you go to conferences or when you talk to these individuals or groups when you sit across from them does that ever factor into your game plan when you go in to do anything like this yeah that's a good question um you know we work nationally and we work state by state and we even work locally um on on county or municipal levels so there's a variety um, oh, you know, there's, I'm always learning how, you know, some government entity or agency gets its funding or works differently than what I anticipated, but there are also patterns, um, in, in politics across the U S right now. So yeah, I don't want to claim to have any particular special knowledge, um, cause it is, it can be a labyrinth of, of relationships, um, backroom deals, uh, external public comment periods, and then what's really going on behind the scenes. It's a lot to negotiate. Um, and it is super helpful to know those things. And again, coming up as a wildlife biologist and, you know, uh, just wanting to study wildlife and understand that side and now realizing how much you have to understand all the social dimensions, the, you know, the political, uh, theory behind all, you know, of, of what goes on in terms of, of setting regulations and policies and practices around uh, wildlife. It's, it's intricate. So it's a good question. I don't know that I'm answering it very well, but it does. It's so helpful to know those things. It's so helpful to, to know your legislators and know how to talk to decision makers. And that's something that we do with Project Coyotes just to empower empower our supporters to know how to raise their voices, to reach out to decision makers. We also have a Keeping It Wild Youth Education Program. We're trying to get good curriculum into all kinds of educational programs so kids know about wildlife, they know about, you know, environmental knowledge, uh, but also they know how to be active citizens, you know, tomorrow's citizens, tomorrow's decision makers. So we're really trying to empower them to be involved in the process. So so this is for both Michelle. I'll start with you, and then uh, Renee, if you if you don't mind chiming in afterwards. What are the tools, Michelle? And maybe they're the same, or they might be different depending upon where you guys are. What are the tools, like you just said, that you're trying to give the next generation or this younger generation, or, or anyone for that matter, to combat? Let's say it's you know relisting wolves or stopping uh, predator 
killing contests or whatever it is, what what are the tools that you're giving them, the information that you specifically, Michelle, are giving them? And then Renee, let us know how that how that works for you with the with the campaigns. Sure. So there are there are the tools I just mentioned in terms of knowledge on navigating um, the democratic process that is decision making um, on on wildlife policy. So that's local, county, state, and federal processes. So um, we're trying to empower folks to know how to, to make their voice heard. So that's that's a huge part of it. Um, but there's also the coexistence that happens in your own backyard and living by example and showing your family, friends, and neighbors how to coexist. So a lot of our coyote-friendly communities program focuses on uh, promoting those sort of tools. That means you know, empowering folks with the knowledge and tools to uh, not habituate coyotes or other wildlife in their, their backyard. That means reducing attractants like compost, uh, loose bird seed, companion animal food in the backyard. So don't bring coyotes too close into your yard. That that prevents habituation. Um, and then knowing how to 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 haze or scare coyotes away when there is habituation, because sometimes you got a neighbor who is intentionally feeding coyotes or unintentionally feeding coyotes. So being big, bad, and bold. So there's, there's really on the ground tools. How do you respond? How do you have the knowledge when you need to respond in real time to these issues? And then, you know, how do you create a safe space in your backyard? So a lot of our education goes towards empowering, um, knowledge around around that front but also you know there's science to say you've got to empower people to um, address risk but you also have to remind them of the benefits of of carnivores or predators or other wildlife in their backyard so that's so so important to remind people coyotes and other wildlife are you know they're free rodent control um, they're reducing disease transmittance all that kind of stuff so um, it's a really wide breadth of, of education that we try and promote. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know something that we're doing with the protecting Americans wolf protecting America's wolves campaign um, is really trying to show people, you know, provide and equip our supporters with the tools that they need to kind of engage um, um, engage in advocating for these species and for carnivores, right? So like talking to your legislators, um, demanding action um, at, you know, at specific targets like Secretary Halland or President Biden um, or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, like how, you know, equipping them with the tools on on, on how they can advocate for wolves. Um, so I think a lot of our work is um, just giving them that kind of toolkit on, you know, writing letters to the editor to raise public awareness, like, how can you engage in these issues and, and actually make a difference? Um, and so, and then, and then motivating them to engage, keeping them publicly informed on what's happening. Like, um, you know, a few weeks ago, we had a post on um, the 25 wolves that were killed last year at that Yellowstone National Park wolves. You know, I still bring that up to people and, and people don't even know that 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 was the death toll of Yellowstone National Park wolves. Um, and people don't even know what wildlife killing contests are. They don't know that they happen in my state of New York, right here in New York, you know. Um, so I think it's a lot of public public education and awareness. And, and as they become aware of these things and, and start to get kind of want to push back, show them the ways in which they can advocate and, and, and ask for change and push for change. 
Are we, I mean, we want to get back to these types of questions, I think, on the other side of this, this uh, arc that I'm about to start, John. Um, and I know this is a wolf podcast, but today it's, it's a coyote podcast. And since we don't get to talk a lot about coyotes, <clears throat> I want to get a rundown of just certain basic things. Um, we're going to try to cover some basic stuff. Um, this will be our designated coyote podcast for now. And I'll direct this question to Renee first, just for the sake of focus. Um, but if you want to tag in Michelle instead, that's totally cool. What is the historical relation between wolves and coyotes? Their, their common ancestry, genealogy, how do they relate to each other in terms of their evolution? Sure. Well, um, by no means an expert in all of this, but um, they're, they're both canids. They're both a native wild canids. Um, the, one of the differences, uh, coyotes are truly and completely North American, whereas uh, gray wolves are found across the Northern Hemisphere. So essentially, it's the same species, you know, across that range, that really wide range. Obviously, it's been a long time since there's been connection, but mm -hmm. um, they both are highly adaptable canid species, um, but sit along this, this spectrum of... of um, how would I put it? There's a sort of, when you think about the canid species in North America, you think about wolves on one end um, as being um, really requiring pack dynamics. So they're always in packs. Coyotes are sort of in the middle where they've got fission fusion dynamics, meaning they can live in big packs, very similar to how wolves function, where siblings stick around to raise the younger generation of siblings. Uh, but then sometimes you get dispersal. Uh, but other coyotes, again, depending on the prey base, if they're focused on really small um, rodents and rabbits, for instance, they don't have to be in big pack sizes. And so they might be, um, you know, just a, a single breeding pair and the kids of that year, basically. Um, so they can kind of go from very social to very solitary. And then on, all the way on the other end are foxes. They're almost always solitary and not in in uh, pack structures, the way we think of wolves. So that's a little bit about the differences between the two. Um, they're still closely enough related that they can hybridize in places. And we've seen that where wolves have been extirpated and they're trying to come back. They're looking for mates. They don't find wolf mates. And sometimes um, they've hybridized with, with coyotes. So red wolves in the Southeast have, um, have a good amount of, of coyote genetics and Eastern wolves have a little bit of coyote genetics. Um, Great Lakes wolves um, might also have a little bit. So it's, you know, when I talk to biologists who study the genetics of canids <laughs> in North America, they, they often have a Campbell's soup can and they call it mm. canis supus instead of canis <laughs> lupus because <Right>. once <laughs> you start honing in, the picture gets really complicated and then right. you've got sometimes dog genes here in there. So they think the black wolf coat is actually probably from a, a dog gene. Uh, right. But there are melanistic, almost all black coyotes. Um, anyways, I'm rambling, but yeah, it's a complex no, picture. But it's really interesting in terms of, of human history because coyotes may have, uh, you know, we think of them as originally in the Southwest, but they may have expanded their range across North America a couple of times. Um, and because we came in, we being uh, white settlers, European colonists came in and eradicated wolves almost across their entire range in the lower 48, we created a situation in which one of Coyote's main competitors, wolves, 
were extirpated. And so coyotes being really adaptable, able to, to live near humans better, mostly because they can withstand anthropogenic mortality at really crazy rates, they were able to spread across North America in response to, to those changes. And that's why we've now seen this most recent um, range expansion to coyotes showing up in New York City. And in terms of large species, I'm assuming this is one of the hardest species to, to find a real population number for, or maybe it isn't, I don't know, but is, is there an estimate for how many coyotes are out there in the United States, or at least the, lo- the lower 48, or what does, their, what does their range look like, just for listeners? Their range is across North America now. Um, basically, they've, they've expanded everywhere. You can probably find numbers of coyotes, but I would, I would interpret those very loosely right. because, um, mostly because state agencies who are typically the ones going in and counting animals, they don't, they don't concern themselves with coyote numbers. So we don't have, we don't have great estimates or numbers, you know, state agencies care about the wildlife that gets hunted. So they measure those populations. So, um, or endangered species, right? So we're putting collars on wolves and we're trying to track those numbers and we fight about what those numbers mean and how accurate the models and the estimates are. And then we look at, you know, elk and white-tailed deer because, you know, people want to eat those species or hunt those species. So we've got better numbers in those ranges, but coyotes, bobcats, foxes, uh, there aren't many regulations. There aren't uh, bag limits on how many you can hunt. Uh, there's no seasonal restrictions on when you hunt them. Uh, so we don't have numbers uh, and it's, it can really be a problem in terms of setting good policy. Talk to us about this really interesting concept of demographic compensation. What's kind of amazing about coyotes um, is that they have this kind of biological response to anthropogenic mortality, right? Um, So the more that we, you know, pursue kind of lethal control over the population, they they have this, I think it's an autogenic uh, trait that responds to um, that lethal control with, with actually them producing larger litter sizes. Um, so the more we trap, trap, the more we hunt, um, the more pups that, uh, coyotes, um, give birth to. So, um, it's really counterintuitive for a lot of people. And, um, you know, a lot of times lethal management programs don't even, don't even know of the science behind this, but a lot of times they're actually creating more of a coyote issue because, um, they're responding to this mortality by increasing litter sizes. Yeah, I mean, without getting too far into the weeds, it's it's interesting because there's a couple different mechanisms by which that might be happening. Um, when you, if you kill the breeding female, um, you know, if she had, um, if she had helper coyotes, you know, her offspring from previous year, um, they would have been not breeding um, because she was the, you know, the adult breeder. Um, but that suppression goes away once you kill the, once you kill mom, basically. Um, but you also, because you kill, you know, enough coyotes for a certain amount of time, there's less food competition. So you get higher survival of litters and you get a bigger litter sizes because they're eating really well for a while. And then you see potentially one study suggested within eight months, you get a rebound of the population through these different mechanisms. Um, so you, you know, just to emphasize what Renee said, you, you might be creating more of a problem than originally 
occurred. Um, and you might be getting larger uh, coyote populations that you were trying to suppress, but you have coyote populations that don't have stable pack dynamics. So you're also creating a more chaotic situation that can then mean that these young pups with teenage moms are saying, let's go for the easiest prey. And that's the vulnerable lamb or calf that's not protected and out, you know, in a pasture somewhere. So, you know, we talk about, you know, what kind of real risk there is. Coyotes and other large carnivores take less than 1% of livestock losses across North America. And that's with this system of exploitation in which we might be driving chaos and more conflict. And who knows what that would look like? We have no systems to look at where there aren't unexploited populations. Conflict levels would maybe, maybe be even lower if we weren't creating this problem. They, they are incredible creatures because I remember reading about, I don't know if either of you have read the book Vicious by John T. Coleman, but this is where I first encountered that, like what you were saying, Stephen, and what you both just explained about coyotes is that as the settlers were moving across the West, they were basically, you know, trying to exterminate everything in their path. And that it was, there was a section in there about coyotes specifically and how they, it was just, they, they couldn't do it because they were like, they, they had these contests back then. And the fact that these contests still exist today is a little unnerving to say the least, but that they just, they would just continue to breed and breed and breed. And they were just creating more of a problem across the West. So it's just fascinating that in a way that we, we've tried this before, we, not even tried, we've done this before 150 some odd years ago. And we're still trying this very, very thoughtless method. And we understand it didn't work before and we're still trying it again. It just, it seems very, you know, uninventive. <laughs> it's mind boggling. Yeah. And it's, you know, so, and this relates to another campaign that we have, which is to reform a rogue program called wildlife services under the U S department of agriculture. Um, and, you know, they are, they're a federal entity that goes in at the request of, of ranchers or counties or other entities and prophylactically will just mow coyotes down during a calving or lambing season. Um, you know, they use traps, gun, aerial gunning, snares, poisons, you name it. They'll use anything in their archaic lethal arsenal to wipe out uh, not just coyotes, but, you know, that's a, that's a big target of theirs. And, you know, you have to wonder after a while if it's job security that they're really after. So they just promote this vicious positive feedback cycle so they can go out and do it again next year. And, and, and these counties have contracts with wildlife services. They don't even realize that they've been, they've been approving this budget line item of 70, 80, $90,000 every year. And they had no idea what they were doing. Because um, it's not serving anybody in the county, but it's serving these these private ranching interests. But it's not even serving them because it's not doing any good. And it's just, you know, we're in 2022 and this is still happening. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do other than to scratch my head and shake my fist and and try and get some counties to to see the light. And that's what we've been doing in California slowly, um, using the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, and its requirements to do environmental review of these sort of contracts. And, and we've gotten some success in, in um, places like Mendocino County, where they, um, you know, asked wildlife services to, to amend a contract to include non-lethal, include the science that shows 
what are best practices and, and wildlife services came back and they said, nope, we're not going to even work with you on, on changing this contract. So the county said, okay, we'll cancel it. And we're going to work with Project Coyote to promote non-lethal. And that's what we're doing. So it's, you know, it's, it's one county, but it's a big county and it's a great win. So we're trying to take that model elsewhere. Yeah, just to hammer hammer this point in a little bit, there are some some more direct quote. These are some more direct quotes from uh, for listeners from that article um, that I found really interesting that just enforced this idea. Um, here's one: exploiting or consistently reducing coyote populations keeps the age structure skewed to the younger, more productive adults. Average age of an alpha is one or two years. Therefore, the natural limitations seen in older aged, unexploited populations are absent and the territorial younger populations produce more pups. Um, so I guess that's essentially saying that the, the more young animals you kill because they are likely to be the animals targeted, the younger the average age is and therefore the more coyotes of breeding age you have. So it, it's... Again, wild, really wild conundrum. Another one is um, reductions in coyotes capable of breeding at 10 months of age result in smaller pack sizes, which leaves fewer adults to feed. This is what you were mentioning before, Michelle. Um, this may further add incentive for the remaining adults to kill larger prey, as well as putting pressure on the adults to select for the most vulnerable pl- prey and venture close to areas of, of human activity. So that's, that's what we were mentioning before in a more um, summarized way. I think there's one more I like to. Oh, human control result... Resulting in density reduction results in a smaller social group size, which increases the food per coyote ratio within the territory, which translates in higher pup birth weights and higher pup survival. Um, okay, so this was this was one that okay, and and this is like a tendency that I have is to play devil's advocate, but so forgive me for doing that, but. I can't help but notice this. I can see this being an argument that those who are targeting coyotes might bring up. Um, that this fact of higher pup birth weight and higher pup survival ultimately is desirable. And what I mean is I think the, the idea is here like that this research does a great job of communicating that there's sort of unseen and almost counterintuitive like nuance to out, nuance outcomes to hunting coyotes. And I think part of that message is, you know, hey, coyote hunters, you're, you're only biting yourself because you're actually strengthening each individual coyote's ability to thrive. But then a lot of hunters might say, well, that's the reason exactly to use hunting as a tool to manage numbers of species so that there can be healthier individuals. So I'm interested in your perspective on that to see if we can sort of drive home a rebuttal to that. Is there is there another way to achieve healthier individuals other than to thin out the numbers? Um, and maybe it's just that there are these these negative outcomes to the hunt to to hunters and ranchers that far outweigh this one potentially desirable um, what could be illustrated as a justifiable outcome. Right. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. And um, you know, one issue is that I think it's most participants in wildlife killing contests, and I won't call them hunters because I know ethical hunters who would never want to be put in the same group as, as participants of, of these contests. Yeah. Um, but most of their, their arguments have been, we want to reduce numbers, um, at least locally in places to help that local farmer or rancher. Um, so, you know, the logical response to that is you're not doing a good job. You're not reducing numbers. You can't reduce numbers of coyotes. And there's nothing to suggest that you're reducing the level of conflict. Uh, It's not a one-to-one ratio with numbers. um, And you might actually, as we just talked about, you might be increasing conflict. So based on their stated objectives, 
Um, the evidence that we have shows that uh, it's counterproductive to their stated objectives. So there's no reason to engage in these things. We've got no evidence to suggest that. Um, but, you know, another related argument that we hear is that, well, you don't need to worry about coyotes because we'll never wipe them out. Um, you know, if you look at the population sizes, there's nothing to worry about. They're not going to go on the endangered species list. Um, and that may be true, but that's not the point. And that's an old kind of bias to just focus on population levels and forget that wildlife are individuals, forget that there are pack dynamics um, that we have to manage. And again, if you're just thinking about conflict, you're not addressing that. But let's also talk about the value of an individual and their right to exist and raise a family and their well-being. And we've got to share space with these individuals. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And we we just we actually spoke with Rick McIntyre earlier this week and we were discussing the wolf hunts that just happened in Yellowstone. And he said to, to some degree, it was, it was bad, but it could have been worse. Meaning that, and this is directly what you're talking about with pack dynamics and the average age. I mean, that, that's stunning that an alpha male or female in a coyote pack is roughly one or two years. I mean, that's, that's a pup. In, in a wolf pack for the most part. So, but getting back to what I was, what Rick was saying is that the alphas and the older members of the pack were not the ones that were shot and taken. Does that mean that just because the younger ones were taken, it was any less awful? No, absolutely not. But the pack dynamic, the structure, the hierarchy is still available there in that these alphas and these older females and males that are in the pack can teach the new pups, we're not going to go this way anymore because of what happened with your siblings. Whereas what we're seeing here, what you, Michelle and Renee are explaining about the coyote population is that they're just churning over all of these, you know, if a coyote, if a coyote is likely to reach, you know, two years old, let's say, and it gets killed, then the next alpha male is maybe 11 months old. And so no one is learning in the pack mentality, how to navigate these situations because we're turning over this population so much. And as you say, they're going into this survival mode of, well, we just lost eight, you know, members of our, you know, family in some way, we have to produce 10. And it's just a continuing cycle. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how, A, the survival method of it, but yeah, just how coyotes are just, they're made to do this because they have no other choice and there's no other method for them to, to survive. Absolutely. You know, and that speaks to culture, essentially. And the more we study these, you know, all kinds of species, they've found relocating um, goats in places um, or wild bighorn sheep might have been the study where they relocated bighorn sheep to places that um, were novel to them. And they don't do as well as when they've grown up and know, you know, the migratory routes and the, the places that they need to move. That's, and, and in this paper written by biologists, they called it culture. And so that's starting to kind of reach the, the hearts and minds of all kinds of people studying wildlife and trying to understand they have culture. They pass down knowledge through generations. And, and I think that's what Rick was talking about with wolves is they've got a culture. They, you know, there's a certain pack, maybe it's Molly's pack in Yellowstone. I forget which one, 
Uh, they're one of the only ones that really target bison. That's a culture that gets passed on. Um, and you learn that from, from your ancestors and from your parents. So it's so important to consider how we're, how we're mucking up those systems by coming in and, and um, wiping out families and individuals. Yeah. It's a, so this is the same thing for me when we talk to wolf researchers is the research just seems so ba- so simple, so obvious um, that I wonder how it doesn't penetrate in a lot of cases. But we hear that, you know, one way to, to really change the minds of farmers and ranchers, for example, um, in terms of the wolf debate is to hear from other ranchers because for some reason, you know, well, for obvious reasons, ranchers are more open to hearing things from other ranchers who have had success stories. Um, and that that really pushes the coexistence agenda forward. But this, I assume, is some of the most like clever research out there on, on coyotes that you have on your site. Um, it's got to be difficult to get this I- info out there in such a way that might override the, in quotations, the, the reality that people are observing about coyotes. Um, it's so nuanced and kind of like hidden in plain sight, but it's, it's, it's not as obvious as, you know, a coyote killed my calf. And so, therefore, it, it has to be killed. Um, what uh, what seems to be like the most effective way to to open up someone's eyes who is experiencing a very obvious manifestation of coyote conflict, and therefore uh, reacting with a very default response? But but you want them to to believe and trust in this nuanced science and, and these coyote secrets that you've discovered. Um, what seems to be in your experiences? What's the method? of communication that actually seems to work, that actually seems to to penetrate the, the most? Um, and I'll start with Renee. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, you made a good point. I think, right, when it comes from within um, a community, so if you have one rancher where non-lethal has mm-hmm. been effective for them and they've, they've seen it effective on the ground and and they advocate for it locally um, with uh, with other communities of ranchers. Um, I think that that's definitely something really powerful um, because uh, ranchers, you know, are more likely to listen to other ranchers who have actually proven these methods effective on the ground, even though we have the science that shows, you know, their effectiveness. Um, just hearing it from like-minded people um, is is really huge. Um, so I think that 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 probably is one of the one of the stronger methods for kind of advocating for, for non-lethal for sure. Yeah. Just to kind of complement that point, I think um, in any group, in any identity group, in any community, you've got folks with a curious personality that tends to be that early adopter, uh, that person who's a little bit more open-minded about trying something, um, taking on a little bit of risk to do something new. Uh, so, so finding those folks and let them be the the good messenger within those communities is huge, um, but that takes a long time. And you know, the other route that also takes a long time is to um, build those those one on one relationships and build that trust slowly. Um, like I was talking about in terms of what I did for PhD research, just you know, sit down and have coffee um, in somebody's kitchen and listen to them, listen to their concerns and work together towards addressing those concerns. Again, all of that takes so much time to build that kind of trust. So it's it's a challenge when you're trying to work nationally um, to also build that local knowledge. That's why we need local folks um, to help, you know, um, spread the word, spread the message, and, and build those relationships. Yeah, have you, I'm sure you guys have, does your research or, or do your talking points? Do you do you talk about maybe the Su- Suzanne Asha Stone 
individuals, the Kurt Holtzins, the individuals that have really pioneered some of these ranching methods. Uh, Kurt is specific to lamb, you know, Lava Lake lamb and uh, Suzanne Asherstone is is more broad in terms of ranching. But are you looking to partner with different coexistence uh, entities to to help because it is a national thing that you guys are trying that you are you're a national uh, project or are you just really trying to slowly build up like you say in those smaller communities and then get individuals onto your your team that are able to sort of spread out and and spread the message that way. Mm-hmm. I would say all of the above. Um, you know, we collaborate with, with all these great folks uh, doing this work on the ground or doing this work also nationally because we've got to put all the great minds together to to be most effective and increase our likelihood of success for sure. But we also work, you know, individually with with predator friendly ranchers ranchers on the ground um, to promote these methods. So it's it's all of that and everything in between. Wow. So. So when you talk about predator, because we actually heard that term a little while ago, predator, predator-friendly ranching. So what is, what can, if there's a rancher listening or somebody listening that, what, is it a program? Is it a, a label? And how do, uh, how does a rancher or a ranching community get involved in getting labeled as uh, a predator-friendly ranching uh, you know, singular ranch or just a whole community that's able to do that and get labeled as such? I think, you know, the t- I guess that that title comes with just the use and, and um, deploying non-lethal solutions on the ground. So, you know, um, you know, different things like, you know, fox lights or, or livestock guardian dogs or um, different fencing techniques, um, you know, those using those non-lethal techniques instead of using lethal management, um, you know, is kind of what creates a predator-friendly ranching. And is that, when you're doing the campaign of ranching with wildlife, is that a lot of the talking points that you're trying to get across, Renee? Or how does the ranching with wildlife campaign work either in tandem or separately from that? Um, yeah, it works on promoting all of those non-lethal solutions, um, right? So promoting those kind of... Um, locally with ranchers and and finding ranchers that are deploying them to, like we said before, advocate to other ranchers to kind of use non-lethal on the ground. They use range riders for yeah, for coyotes, that's like a good question. For wolves? Uh yeah, yeah, definitely. That's another technique for sure. Yeah. I was just gonna say it's it's much more common with wolves, um, but it's definitely a, a technique that works for sure. Especially, you know, when you've got um when you've got livestock dispersed across larger landscapes. Um, you've almost got to have range riders, you know, basically modern day shepherds on ATVs or horses or trucks that can cover that ground. Cause you just need that human presence around, or, you know, you got to employ livestock guardian dogs or donkeys or something. Are there any, are there any very new um, technologies being, being tested right now or, or, or uh, flags, lights, dogs, range riders are, are kind of working for now? Well, you know, we've got evidence to suggest, um, you know, that these are the best available tools, um, but there's always room for improvement and innovation. And there's always a need for more studies just to replicate all the different contexts in which these things work or don't work because they are context dependent. You can put up flattery. That's the that's the flagging that hangs by a string. Um, you can put that up for a couple of weeks, particularly you do that during uh, camp 
calving or lambing season when you've got those really uh, vulnerable young ones on the ground. But, you know, these animals are smart as wild animals and they're going to test the fladry after a while. So you can't put that up and expect it to work for a year, but you can expect it to work for weeks to possibly months. Um, and then you've got different guardian dogs that, you know, bark more, or chase more, um, and, you know, the various training techniques to get them um, behaving the way you want them to in various contexts, whether you're near other residences or you're in really rough, rugged terrain. So still plenty of work and innovation to be uh, honing in on, on those best practices. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm, I'm on an advisory board for the Fish and Wildlife Service right now, this Theodore Roosevelt Genius Prize competition, where we're trying to promote more innovation and non-lethal tools. So um, definitely lots of room for, for improvement there. Yeah, that's a special board to be on. Uh, I'll make a suggestion if you guys haven't spoken to, and we can always give you his contact, uh, Daniel Curry up in Washington State. He is he owns Griff, which is a range riding uh, service, um, and he helps a lot of the ranchers up there in Washington State. So if you guys want another helper in the in the arena, he's definitely one, I think, to, to talk to and see if he can lend any ideas or... He's been hugely successful just by by himself, but I think he's trying to get more riders uh, on his uh, on his team, I guess, so to speak. So if you guys need any, would love that contact him. Well, I'd love to talk to him. Thank yeah. you. No, absolutely. He's, a really he's good guy. yeah, he's an incredible guy. We've had him on a couple times, um, and he would be a huge uh, huge addition, I think, to your team. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so in terms of in terms of coyote killing contests, which I, I'm hearing about more and more. Uh, lately, I swear I've ne I never heard about them uh, up until two years ago, and now it's all of a sudden like a thing that people are discovering. Um, what's what's like the context the context of coyote killing contests? How I mean, how long have these been going on for? What's the histor historical context of these, and how widespread is the is the involvement and the engagement in this activity? Yeah, um, uh, really widespread. Yeah, <laughs> across the country, and yeah, and I think that's actually a good sign that you <laughs> might be, you know, maybe more and more people are are kind of hearing about these contests because I too, for, um, you know, was pretty in the dark until until fairly recently at how prevalent they are, um, and how you know they happen in even states like New York where where I grew up, where I wouldn't figure that you know people are going out and having contests and killing coyotes. They, you know, there's one that happens right in Sullivan County, just North of me, um, Ulster County. No yeah. Um, so yeah, they've been going on. Um, I guess I don't know how historically long, but I, you know, for, for good decades, you know, now, um, and yeah, essentially for people, you know, for your listeners who don't know, essentially they're kind of contests or competition where people go out and, um, you know, kill as many coyotes as possible or not just coyotes, but, you know, they have all kind of wildlife killing contests um, and then essentially win prizes based off like the most, you know, number of coyotes killed or the heaviest coyote killed. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're blood sports. And like Michelle said before, you know, it's, it's not ethical hunting. These, you know, this is not um, kind of traditional eth ethical hunting. This is just um, killing for sport and for fun, which is um, just on lack of a better word, it's just not cool. <laughs> but, yeah. I just, yeah, I don't understand. I don't know. Maybe it was me trying to avoid that question, Stephen. <laughs> no, I know. And I was kind of, yeah, like, no, we should. Uh, but then I'm like, no, we, no, we, we have, have to. to. And it, it's, to. and I know it's, it's, 
it's our obligation to understand why. And it's, again, it just goes back to all these, you know, I've been, I've been reading so many books about, you know, our history across, across the landscape. And it just still frightens me a little bit that we're still stuck in this mindset that, that really predates this country and predates the settlers coming across from Europe to what is now North America. And it, you know, and obviously the formation of the United States is that this, this is hundreds of years of being afraid of predators, not understanding correctly what they do for the landscape and going back, you know, into the 1400s 1500s of, you know, we have to exterminate these, these vile beasts and these vermin and that this just continues to carry on down the line hundreds of years later is it's somewhat fascinating in a way, but to me, it, it does, is there, is there anything that you, either of you, Michelle, Renee, pop in on this, that you try to dispel? And I know it seems very simple, a very simple question, but what's, what are the basic things that individuals bring when you have these conversations or you're talking about a campaign that they say, I believe this and it's, what's the retort for something as simple as, well, I think wolves might attack me or my children or might do something or coyotes are, are, or do something, you know, you know, eat my dog or whatever it is, you know, what's the retort? What's the, what's the, the angle that you guys use to try and dispel a lot of these myths? Um, yeah, I think it it really starts with uh, good education. Um, and, you know, we do this, I do, we do this a lot as an organization with our Coyote Friendlies uh, community program where people are, people really do have a strong fear a lot of times on coyotes in their community. They're, you know, they're fearful for their dogs or their self. And, um, and so it's, it's dispelling um, some, a lot of rumors and myths and, 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 and kind of, you know, rhetoric around coyotes. And then it's also educating people on the action steps that they can take, like hazing strategies, um, in order to not be fearful. Like there's direct actions that we can take if we don't feed coyotes, you know, this, like, you know, if we don't feed wildlife or coyotes, they're non-aggressive, right? If we don't, if they don't associate people with food, we know that they're, um, extremely less likely to be aggressive. And then it's, and then it's also, you know, yeah, like I said, dispelling, you know, people kind of believe that um, coyote attacks are much more prevalent than they are than they are. Um, but they're, you know, people are, I forget the exact stats, but dog bites, you know, nationally are, you know, millions happen every year. And compared to coyotes who, you know, the it's in the single or, you know, lower double digits, right? Like coyotes are not, um, you know, biting people. And, and so it's, it's dispelling a lot of um, rumors and myths surrounding coyotes and then and then public education on action steps that people can take in order to you know to train their coyotes in their local community to um to not come to still be wild and wary of people and and to coexist with people and and so yeah champagne corks are more dangerous than than large carnivores (laughs) like coyotes yeah lawnmowers um, oh yeah, definitely those. You know, domestic animals, like yeah. um, not to vilify other animals, but or, you lo- know, or lawnmowers. Right, <laughs> Renee <laughs> hit the nail on the head when he 
spoke about fear. There's a cognitive side to fear, but so much of it is an emotional thing. And, and that applies to all of us, not just some people. And that's what we hear so much in wildlife. It's like, oh, the other side's emotional and it's bad. Um, and I'm logical. No, we're all somewhat logical and we're all very emotional about these things. And so you can't necessarily just throw the science and the stats at somebody and say, don't be worried about your kid. Your kid's fine. Of course, <laughs> you know, yeah. and just, you know, poo poo that impossible. idea. Right. It's empowering right. people yeah. to feel like they're in, they have a sense of control, which is like at the heart of so much fear. It's why people are afraid of flying, but not driving. Exactly. Even though driving is so much more dangerous, you feel safe because you're in control and you trust yourself. Right. But you don't know what's going on. you got to trust this whole system when you fly. And so it's the same thing, giving people a sense of control, giving people tools so that they can, they can, they feel that they're addressing the situation, even if that level of risk is really low. So I think that's so yeah. important. Yeah, it's, it's really hard for me to swallow the word uh, contest as well um, in the context of, of killing or harvesting animals, whatever you want to call it. And the, these activities are kind of the reason that the hunting tradition itself seems to be slowly cannibalizing in a lot of, of places it's like the the irony you know um it seems that whenever animals money and and competition are involved regardless of how accepted an activity is there's going to be some level of abuse it's kind of like it's kind of just what we do um would a quota on on hunting coyotes end this type of fringe activity and do you see any future in which a quota is 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 justifiable enough for it to actually be implemented? It's yeah. I mean, we ask that question a lot. You know, a quota would be helpful, but it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily end these contests completely, and it could be pretty hard to enforce. So there's some challenges to that. That's why we're really focusing on just taking away the ability to compete for cash and prizes to kill as many. Um, wild animals and that's not taking away coyote hunting by any means um, but it's taking away the unethical part that we really really object to we as americans generally really object it's odd that it's accepted i think i mean in the in in the mid-1900s i thought that our i thought that our issue with what was happening was that people were trading animals for money and that's what was causing the problem and they were you know you were able to use animals for at, you know, to, you were able to use hunting as a as a means to make a living, and it seems like this is just kind of like a loophole method of doing that anyway. It's such a good point that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. You know, the model of the foundation of of wildlife management, which really means hunting regulations in this country, was founded on getting away from commercialization of wildlife so that it was protected in the public trust as a resource for everybody. Um, now the public trust is super important. We don't necessarily see animals as resources, um, but yeah, I mean it's a foundational thing that we should all be agreeing on that this kind of commercialization is is unacceptable from all perspectives. I will say, um, you know, we, um, and you know, instead of even enacting a quota, we, you know, we've been working to just get statewide bans of of YKCs and have also, you know, helped introduce federal legislation too to ban it on um, on federal lands as well. Um, so, you know, those are the, some, some of the things that we're working on, you know, we've had eight states already that have outlawed these events and, and we're working to kind of promote it and, and introducing legislation in other states across the country. So are any of those eight states ones that have 
uh, laws already in place, or are they like are they any in the any in the western part where there are more uh, coyotes in wilderness, or are they more um, urban settings? You know, we have Colorado, I believe, um, Arizona, so some some western states. California has banned them. Um, Vermont has banned coyote killing contests. Um, uh, Washington, I believe, is one of them. Um, Maryland. Um, is that eight? I think that's them. Or New Mexico as well. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, kind of, kind of across the board, we have legislation introduced, um, in New York and New Jersey, uh, to ban them as well. Um, and, uh, probably a few other States that I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, yeah. And then, and then this year, um, federal legislation was introduced in order to ban, um, ban them on federal public lands. And we've um, starting to potentially, I think we have a hearing that um, is happening next week that Michelle had uh, heard about this week. So maybe some potential movement on on that bill, which would be amazing. Yeah, that would be ideal. I mean, I mean, like Stephen, like Stephen said, you guys are two things that you said, Stephen, about just the, if there's any hope that we, we, we go in the direction and we, we give literally 150% on whatever it is, because we think there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then also the, the amount of work both of you are putting in is astronomical and very much appreciated because I, I can't, you know, I mean, we do a good amount of work on our end, but you guys are just every day uh, churning out information, campaigning, and trying to get people to understand why these things are not, not cool anymore. And also, how we can, but just how we can be better. And I think that's always, that's always the thing we try and get across here. At least anybody that we interview is to find out how can we do better and be better. And I think you both are, are doing an exemplary job of trying to do that. And uh, I, I can't thank you both enough for, for all the work that you're, that you're doing. It's, it's unbelievable. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And likewise. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to, since I know Stephen, and this is, this is our, our coyote podcast for now. And we're <laughs> it's our coyote episode. It's our coyote episode for now, but it's been great. But please, whoever wants to take this, either Michelle or Renee, give everybody places, social media websites where they can find out about Project Coyote, about campaigns, follow all, all the stuff so that they can get involved uh, in any way with you guys. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So visit, uh, projectcoyote.org. Um, you know, I would recommend signing up for our e-team as well as follow us, following us on all, uh, social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and you know, on a wolf related note, you know, we do have our protecting America's wolf campaign. And, you know, if you follow along on social media, we're equipping our supporters with weekly targeted actions on how they can advocate for, the wolves of the Northern Rockies. Um, so definitely follow on social media to, to help advocate for wolves um, and um, as well as sign up for our E-team. And um, yeah, yeah, stay involved, stay, you know, informed and and advocate. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to have all of those links for anybody who's listening. We'll have all that stuff in yep. the description so you everybody can take a look at that. Uh, I'll ask my, my final question. Stephen, do you have anything that you want to to add that we didn't go over. I think we hit all the all the things because we really want to uh, hit all the stuff I okay. had on my thing. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'll I'll ask the two of you, um, 
and I'll start with Renee and then Michelle, we'll, we'll pop right over to you. So my final question to both of you is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Um, probably the last time that, um, I observed a pack in, in, uh, in Yellowstone and just like the pure, uh, wildness of that experience. Um, and yeah, yeah. I think they're an emblem of, of, you know, of, um, just kind of wild landscapes. And, and that's why I love them so much. Like I said, you know, when I moved from New York to Montana, I was really in search of, of just like vast, you know, wildness and, and wolves really, you know, embody that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely what comes to mind. All right. Just for the sake of this podcast, we have to do an edit to that too. We, we also have to ask when you hear the yes, word Yes, we'll do that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. For them, um, adaptable and inquisitive and, and smart. Um, I think, yeah, you know, in this position, I've learned more and more about coyotes and I'm just blown away at how kind of adaptable and, and, and strong they are despite our efforts to, to, um, you know, yeah. So yeah, I would say adaptable and, and, and smart. Yeah. Well, well, Renee got to go first (laughs) and she took my answers. I mean, it's, I think so much of what, we all think about, so, I mean, I think the thing I would add is, is that I think about the lessons that they can each teach us. So wolves represent a sort of wildness that's challenging in some ways. I mean, they live by family dynamics that we can all appreciate. So I think that's important to remember. Um, So it's a wildness with a certain set of rules. I think that we can all, you know, in a democratic country really respect and understand Um, But they do challenge us in a way. And that's, you know, we didn't talk about our rewilding work, but I think, you know, rewilding through apex predators like wolves helps us think about, you know, where we can let go of human control and intervention in all of our landscapes, or at least in some of our landscapes. So I would say when I think about wolves, I think about the challenge to let go of control and to embrace a certain wildness that's been so hard um, and that Americans have not grown up with. And when I think about coyotes, I think about learning to be really adaptable. Um, and they've got their own wildness that I think maybe is a little bit more accessible because we can see it in our backyards and we can see it in our city parks. Uh, and they care about their families also. Um, and they will do whatever they need to do to survive. And so, again, as we meet these challenges of biodiversity crises and climate crises, you know, thinking about how the coyote survives, I think, is really inspiring. Yeah. Actually, speaking of that, we didn't talk. Yeah. Is, is, we should just post an article about that, John, on our Instagram because we didn't get to it. The rewilding. Is that, are you, is it rewilding.org? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So rewilding.org. So my position is a, is a joint position with, um, with both organizations, Project Coyote and rewilding.org, um, and where those missions okay. kind of, you know, um, align and work together and, and how, Carnivores are kind of crucial to rewilding landscapes and and letting natural ecosystems kind of okay. um, rewild themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We got to post some pictures of our uh, our koi wolves from uh, WC too. As um just uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Nolly's a good we one. So those. we give we do actually have a koi wolf yeah. on site. So should we to rescue her from Arizona or New Mexico? One of them. Um, but yeah, this has been this has been extremely. I always say it's it's informational, but man, you you both have uh, given me a lot to think about, a lot to re- do more research about. Um, but thank you again, thank you both 
for, for doing everything you're doing. So Michelle Lute, uh, Renee Secor, you guys just keep on doing what you're doing. And uh, again, if you guys want to come back anytime uh, and talk with Stephen and I about something new, a new campaign, a new uh, something that's happening, legislation, uh, just, you know, shoot us an email and, and we're happy to have you guys back on again. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely take you up on that. No, this has been great. great. We'll uh, house to you all out there and Stephen and I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 